welcome back to Paul Tick Tick Boom. It's been a while, and I'll explain that at the end after we interview my first guest back, uh, Billings restaurateur and lawyer John Heenan. How are hey, you, Kev? sir? Great. Good. Good. Hey, I got to eat at your restaurant. And I was actually eating with Amanda Curtis there, and we were talking, and she was like, he needs to introduce himself as a restaurant owner, a small business owner before a lawyer. And I was like, yeah, lawyers. But tell me about how you got started in the restaurant business. Yeah, so, uh, you know, to the lawyer lawyer thing, I don't view it, you know, I'm not going to vouch for every lawyer, but I will tell you what I do which is stick up for people. I stick up for people that get ripped off by banks, ripped off by payday lenders, ripped off by debt collectors. I'm damn proud of what I do, and I'm damn proud of you know who I get to represent and, frankly, who I get to be against. And so... Oh, we'll every, get into who you get to be you against. Know, <laughs> so when I run into people in an elevator, in a hallway, at an airport, they go, what do you do? I say, well, I'm a consumer protection lawyer. They say, lawyer, okay, what's that? Say, well, I stick up for people against banks and insurance companies. They're like, oh, that kind of lawyer. We like that. Exactly. So that part I'm not not shy about. And that, frankly, is what I do uh, the bulk of my time. So, but in Billings, in my little neighborhood, there were a lot of chain restaurants. And that's not a knock necessarily on chain restaurants, but... I can eat Subway and Billings the same as I can in New York or Wisconsin or, you know, Argentina. And, and so forever, we would walk around our neighborhood and say, I wish there was a restaurant that, you know, was a, a, a local restaurant, an, a neighborhood restaurant. And I started really chirping at my wife, like, if anything ever comes open... I want to open a restaurant. And she said, well, you don't know anything about restaurants. And frankly, you order off the kids' menu with, <laughs> <laughs> with, with the kids. So you don't even know the difference between good food and bad food. And I said, yeah, but... Um, but I can learn. <laughs> but I can learn. And, and so it was really kind of a neat story because I, I hooked up with and got introduced to our amazing chef and co-owner, Travis. And so we, Travis and I were kind of scouting together. And and this location opened up, and, and we went for it. And that was three years ago, and it's been amazing. And it's been amazing not just in a... Restaurants rarely make money. Ours does a little bit. But it's been amazing because... Uh, We've worked hard to make it be a, a part of the community, a part of our little slice of Billings. And every day I'm proud of that restaurant. I'm proud of seeing... I mean, here's the the first day that it opened, and I sat down there at 4 o'clock, and nobody walked in. And it's like having a party, and nobody's showing up. And nobody came to my restaurant, you know? And, and I just went, shoot... I'm sure you it, didn't, but and then, yeah. And then at five o'clock, people came in, and more people came in, and more people came in, and we've never spent a dollar on advertising, and I can't get a reservation. So it's oh, wait, you can't get a reservation. You were telling me the story earlier that you can't get a reservation at your own. Re- like you'll call, hey, I'd like to come down for dinner, and your hostess says that's delightful. No, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, 
before we got involved, I thought there'd be this cool, like, juice that came with having a restaurant, right? <laughs> like, this will be, you know, clear the table up front because the Heenans are coming. Well, at least at local, there is no juice. There is no, like, membership has its privileges because often I'll eat at the restaurant across the street <laughs> because I can't get into Your own our, our restaurant. No, that's great on so many levels because it proves that you don't. Like, you're not pulling rank and doing the whole, oh, I'm this, which is one of the things that uh, the opponent on the GOP side tends to do. <laughs> yeah, there's another guy like that in this race, and so I work hard not to be like that and hope that no one would ever accuse me of being like that. I haven't seen any of it before. But what really made you get into this race? Was it was it strictly how he was acting, or was there some, had it been something that was kind of on your radar anyway? Or was it... You woke up one morning and said, I have to do this. It wasn't on my radar at all. I was very troubled by the special election, as were all of us in Montana, and frankly, a lot of people across the country. Um, How does a guy assault a reporter, lie to the police, use his money and power to try and flout the legal system and still hold office? So that all bothered me. And, and frankly, you know, what I do is stick up for people that don't have power, stick up for people that don't, you know, aren't able to bend the rules. And so it, it really bothered me just this, you know, everyone's accountable. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how much power you have. Everyone ought to be held accountable. And I didn't see that. And I didn't see anybody stepping forward that was willing to say let's let's insist on accountability and so really you know so I got in I said well this is why people said okay great you know you're right what are you going to do when you're our representative and that's obviously a very fair question so boiled down I've been running around the state traveling talking to people you know my clients are not people that have lobbyists. They're not people that have political power. They don't have any say in decision-making in Washington, D.C. And we watch these bad decisions be made all the time. And we kind of all shrug our shoulders and say, how come this is happening? And, well, the reason it's happening is because lobbyists and corporate insiders and people that are beholden to lobbyists that's how kind of sausage gets made in Washington I thought I wanted to stand up and I wanted to stand up for my clients I wanted to stand up for Montanans and say you know we deserve someone that's actually gonna sit down listen to us doesn't matter what party you're affiliated with it doesn't matter you know everyone has the same problems They all deserve someone that's willing to sit down with them, listen to their problems, and then go be a fighter for them. And, you know, that's what I do. I'm a fighter. I want to go fight for Montana the way that I have for my clients. And I think you're probably going to do a great job. Um, With everything that you've run into as you've been campaigning now for seven months, eight months? About the time? Feels like seven years. (laughs) January felt like seven years (laughs) just from the weather. But... Since you've been campaigning, what are the things that you'd like to tell Montanans and and others 
that you haven't had a chance to talk about because you've done all the candidate forums. I mean, I hosted one that you did here in Lewis and Clark County. I know you're doing one with the Greater Montana Foundation. There's the one that you did in Butte and Bozeman did theirs. But we all kind of asked similar questions. What are the things that you really want to talk about that you haven't had a chance to bring up? Yeah, so it's interesting as I do these Democratic candidate forums, there's, I'd say, seven questions that are the same. And those are questions that get asked in these forums that don't, frankly, come up, you know, so however many months I am into this, I've done 30,000 miles in my car, we've done 150 of these town hall style meetings where, you know, we'll walk into a coffee shop, we'll walk into the, you know, American Legion, we'll walk into the VFW, we'll announce it on social media, we'll say, please come join us, we're going to be in your town next week. And there's been this just amazing, you know, people show up. Not all of them are supporters. Some of them want to argue with you. That's okay, you know. There's a lot of commonality. There's the issues that get asked in these candidate forums are issues that, frankly, uh, they're social issues that, that divide us as Americans, divide us as Montanans. When I travel around the state and talk to communities, talk to people at coffee shops, what they care about are what I would call kitchen table issues. It's not to say they don't care about other things, but what they care about is boiled down the American dream. And why is it gone or being destroyed? I mean, how come I can't send my kid to school anymore? How come my kid that has gone to school has all the student loan debt and can't get ahead? How come there's not a job for my kid or a job for me uh, in Montana that will allow him or her to raise a family? How come I can't, you know, retire? How come because my spouse got cancer, I, I can't get ahead? I, you know, I have to file bankruptcy. It's economic issues that I find that everyone's worried about. People are, people are rightly saying, who's going to fight for us on these, on these issues? And those are issues that, you know, it's not Republican, it's not Democrat. It's just, what happened? Why can't we get ahead? And, and those are more than fair questions for people to be asking. And frankly, there's, there's easy answers. The answer is because... Rich people are taking the cookie and leaving everyone else to fight over the crumbs. So how do we change that? We clean house. Uh, we elect a brand new Congress. We actually commit ourselves to draining the swamp. And what that means is uh, we elect people that are beholden to us, not corporations, not lobbyists, not insiders. And once you, you know, unshackle or, you know, free, <laughs> free representatives to actually represent people, then common sense can prevail. And that's not a partisan issue. And so there's just all these weird, like healthcare. I'm a huge proponent of Medicare for all. It's because I've fought with insurance companies. I've watched in real time a totally broken healthcare system. And 
when I, you know, people show up at these town hall meetings and they say, I'm a conservative and I think Medicare for all is stupid. I say, what is conservative about coddling health insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies? And the more you get into it, they're like, yeah, you're right. There is nothing conservative about protecting insurance company profits, protecting pharmaceutical company profits. That's, you know, those are just economic efficiency kinds of, uh, of, of issues. So it's okay. It's not economically efficient to pay three times as much here in America as we do in other countries for, for pharmaceuticals, for procedures, for health care. Why are we okay with that? Well, the reason is because lobbyists have a stranglehold o- over our representatives. So as you looked into issues like Medica- uh, health care is actually an interesting one for me because I always when, – when people ask me about what my thoughts are in health care, I always go back to, well, the patent system needs to be changed. Because I see yeah. government as this inter- interlocked bunch of – well, it's like the greatest puzzle nobody ever put together. <laughs> right. Our hard, mi- our hard rock mining laws are from 1882. Right. I mean, things are a little different. Right. Well, our gun laws are from 1882. Things are a little bit different. And so when you're coming up against those things, I mean, I understand the idealism that goes behind it. But you're one of those people, because you've been a consumer protection lawyer, you've actually been doing that job in a very real way for specific people. Can you bring some of I mean, I'm assuming you're going to be bringing your skills to that. But do you see a way to bring that look to other industries? Because, like... Uh, patents are a great one to look at. The way the patents affect the way technology is done. The sure. way we're, the way we're able to. I mean, everybody talks about how. I mean, this is a podcast, and there was about three years ago a patent that went around, and it was owned by a patent troll. Doesn't develop anything, but owned this patent about making a podcast, and a podcast is effectively the same as handing out a mixtape. Sure. But somehow they were able to get a patent on it. And it's a ridiculous thing. And our patent laws are so strange. And the the defense that you have to go through to defend yourself against a patent law is so expensive that you end up with these people that just license it because it's easier to license it. It's cheaper to license it. And you end up with these trolls that that, while they licensed it, so now there's precedent. And people are like, well, whatever. But... When it comes to healthcare, you've got research that's funded by government grants, but then they're allowed to patent it so they get all the profits even though they didn't have to pay for any of the research. Right. And we go, how come in France or Canada, consumers are paying one-third we're paying? You know, why Why will or we... Or in the UK, they're paying half. Yeah, or UK and the half, you know. And why won't we empower our government to, you know... Government is not allowed to negotiate the cost of prescription medicine. I mean, it's just... You know, what? Yeah. It's no, just, explain that to me. They're not allowed to negotiate the cost of medicine. So, yeah. some, so a pharmaceutical says this is what it costs and they have to take it? Yeah. And they, and they bake in, uh, well, we have to pay for all this research and development. So. But the research and development is funded by grants. Absolutely. It's corporate welfare. It's No, that's corporate theft. It is corporate theft. Yeah. All so, right. So when you sit around with people and, you, and they want to say uh, socialism, yeah, let's talk about socialism. What, you know, what do we call? Because I, I go back to I've got a restaurant. I've got 13 employees. I sell hamburgers and steaks and french fries. If you don't like the food that we cook at our restaurant, 
should I be able to say to government, uh, you should subsidize me, you should make sure that I can profit? That's frankly the opposite of capitalism. But, you know, that's what's happening in our healthcare industry. That's what's happening in our prison industry. That's what's happening in, I mean, give me a sector. And basically government picks winners and losers. Okay, so I have a problem with protectionist government as well. <laughs> Mostly because I think everybody should be able to make their own liquor. But that's a whole different story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll get into that later. But let, let's go to, you mentioned prisons. Let's talk about that for a minute. Because in Montana, we have one private pr- yeah. prison that I know of. And I think it's the only one. Yeah, and Shelby. Yeah, and uh, why do we have it? Why, do, why is there private prisons anywhere? What is going on with that? Yeah, it's, you know, capitalism works really good for certain segments, like restaurants, all kinds of things. Um, Education, prisons, fire departments, not so much, right? I mean, and frankly, you know, fire departments is always the one that I like to come back and say, in most communities, we decided, you know, because, right, it used to be... um, you buy fire insurance, and if your house catches on fire, if you've got the insurance, then the fire insurance company will pull up in front of your house and will put out your fire. And if you don't have the insurance, they'll let it burn. And 100 years ago, communities decided, uh, you know, if we're neighbors, neighbors, Kev, and you don't buy the insurance, and so the fire department pulls up in front of your house and they say please show us you have the insurance and you don't have it. And so they all, you know, cross their arms and watch your house burn down. That's bad for you, but it's bad for me as your neighbor because my property value has now gone way down because I live next to a burned out Kev's house. Well, more importantly, while it's burning, it could burn your house. It could burn my house. So wait a minute. And it could kill somebody inside. And there's all these things. Right. But... A long time ago, this is this is communities. True. This is absolutely true. Okay, so this, is, this is something I had, I did not know at all. So yeah, and so let's talk about public education. Oh, no, 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 finish the fire well, thing. So mm-hmm. so take the fire thing, right? Mm-hmm. Communities decided this is a good thing for us as taxpayers. Instead of it being private, capitalism does does not work so well for putting out fires. Let's as taxpayers fund fire departments that will, if, if your house we'll is on fire, will take care of the community. We'll put your house, you know, put the fire out. The same logic applies to police force, right? Mm-hmm. They're not checking your insurance card, you know. Well, they are when they pull you over, but that's all. Well, <laughs> but it's, you can have Canco, you can have, you know, ADT, but the police department will... Stop a crime regardless of whether you've paid for insurance, right? right? We all kind of as a society decided a long time ago that makes sense. Well, let's extrapolate it to education. A long time ago, we said, you know what? How about taxpayers pay for seven year olds, eight year olds, 10 year olds, 18 year olds to get educated? Because it's good for society. It's in so many ways, you know, 
increases the tax base, makes sure that these people have good-paying jobs. Um, It just makes sense. We all decided that's a good thing. In this current environment, if we didn't have public education and they carried a bill into the U.S. Congress and they said, let's have the taxpayers pay for eight-year-old kids to get an education because it just makes sense, these people would be saying, that's socialism, that's communism, that's nuts. Why should we have to pay for this? They are saying that. I know. I know. This is, my point is, these aren't like new crazy ideas. These are the bedrocks of what makes America great. And it's all under attack. It's all under attack so that people that have so much can have just a little bit more. They're taking the cookie and leaving us to fight for the crumbs. And I say, to what end? What's, you know, what's the, what's the end game here? You know, my neighbor is a, you know, is a disabled kid. You want to take away his funding. You want to make sure that he can't learn. To what end? What do you want to do with him? What's the, you know, America is great because we take care of our own. And all of that is, is under assault. And I just, it, it, it keeps me up at night. Because the people that I deal with, the people that I represent, the people that I fight for, are, are the ones that are trying so hard, so hard, and often can't get ahead. And it's, it's not a level playing field. And everyone deserves a level playing field. doesn't mean you deserve handouts and freebies. It just means you deserve a level playing field. Yeah. So we're kind of leaning into this nicely, but um, one of the big problems that we have right now is the economic disparity that happens between the frontline workers and the people who own companies. Yeah. And Montana has always been kind of ground zero of this movement to fix that. I mean, we've been the center of where unions started. Butte is a massive uh, union town, and the unions uh, have grown in interesting ways, and some of them have really, really good power structures in place to protect people, and some of them don't. Um, but we haven't seen a lot of new unions, and we've seen a lot of new industry. And how do we convince people that the union isn't this thing that, because, okay, I'll be honest, I grew up in a household that it, I, I'm a bell kid. I mean, <laughs> talk about industries that try to screw people. <laughs> and uh, my parents were in management, so they weren't part of the union. They always had to deal with when the union went on strike, my parents went away for whatever reason. And um, so m- that always colored how I saw unions because they weren't working for my parents. They weren't working for my family. And, uh, you know, then I became an adult and I saw what they were actually doing and I kind of got it. Uh, but now I see we have these industries where there aren't any unions at all. And there's such wealth disparity, in, and it starts in those industries. I mean, technology is a great example of that. You have these people that found these companies that make literally billions of dollars a year. I mean, the, the wealthiest man in the world right now is Jeff Bezos, who founded Amazon. And he, yeah, Amazon is a, is a great idea, but they're kind of a crap company, and they don't pay people very well. And you end up with these people that need government assistance just to get through their day because they're not being paid. And, you know, but they're owned by the literally the wealthiest guy in the world. How do we fix those systems? How do we get that back? I mean, how do we give the unions power without doing the thing that I saw as a child? Maybe I just saw it and it wasn't true. But we have a lot of people that don't trust the unions. How do we fix that? 
Well, and I think there's a lot of baked-in propaganda against unions right now. I mean, it's cheaper for corporations to smear unions than it is for them to negotiate with unions. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is that, you know, they know, corporations know, that they're going to have a lot easier time picking people off one at a time, negotiating with people one at a time. The example I use on that is, um, you know... Your cell phone contract, right? If you ha- if you took the time to look at it, it's long. You probably read it electronically. There's all kinds of boilerplate and paragraphs and and words that you don't see anywhere else. Yeah. Do you, as the customer, get the opportunity to, you know, mark it up and make a counter offer to Verizon or AT and T and say, you know, I've received your contract. I, I'm now prepared to counter, and, you know, I hope you'll accept my counter. Of course not, right? No. They, you know, it's totally one-sided. Um, I worked at uh, Little Caesars in, in high school, you know. Back when it was Pizza Pizza? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't quite. Yeah, but they gave you the two pizzas. Yeah. Um, so it was a little, you know... It was before my time, but if you work at Little Caesars now, if you work at McDonald's, if you work at Albertsons, fill in the blank. You fill out your job application online, and you're filling out the same kind of form as, you know, boilerplate stuff. You don't have the opportunity to say, you know, dear McDonald's, I understand that you're offering me $9 an hour to start. May I counter offer at ten twenty five and let's you know, I look forward to negotiations. They dictate all the terms, all the terms they're in power you're not uh, unions are the opportunity to to counterbalance that because it's not just you it's you and all of your friends that you know or don't know, and you're collectively bargaining you're negotiating together. well, corporations hate that they don't you know they'd rather deal with you one at a time so they have all the power and what we're watching in real time is the full-on attack on unions and that's in the public sector that's in with education and teachers and it's in the private sector where it's nearly impossible to collectively bargain it's nearly impossible to start a new union and frankly it's you know it's the nursing home workers. It's the healthcare workers. It's the fast food workers. It's the you know hotel and rest you know hotel lot industry. Those are the people that really need um, union support. They're the people that need you know to negotiate together so that they have power. And that's one of the several factors that, frankly, is you know creating this massive income inequality which in my opinion is just, you know, reached a crisis point and it's and we're at a critical time now where can we as a country continue to, you know, thrive? Is the American dream dead? I don't know, but a lot of it is you know, protecting labor, protecting unions and a whole host of other things. Frankly, uh, if you look at Uh, tax brackets over time. I mean, if you want to just really, you know, I nerd out on this stuff, but, Mm -hmm. you know, look at, look at historical, Google search historical tax brackets. 
Look at what the top tax bracket was 70 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago. Look at, look at what it was under Reagan. And then you look at what it is now. I mean, this most recent, uh, quote, tax reform where, where you're knocking down the top tax bracket, to what end? I mean, to what end? Now it's 37%. Under Reagan, it was over 50%. And here in Montana, I mean, it's, it's kind of beyond my purview as a, as a congressional candidate. But we watched the special session. We watched all these budget cuts that really affected people, really hurt the people that are least capable of being hurt. And we said, why is this happening? The reason it's happening is because 10 years ago we lowered the top tax bracket. We insisted on tax cuts for the richest among us. And now's the fallout because it's a zero-sum game. And those in power decided that they would rather give more money to people that have lots of money and take it from my disabled neighbor. And I hate that. With all of the things that have gone on in the last year and a half, well, it feels so much longer. It's been a year and a month, I guess, a year and two months uh, since Trump was inaugurated. And everything that we had that we thought was true about the presidency, was thought was true about how our government functions has been called into question. As you've been facing this, do you realize the uphill battle that you face and are you really willing to put up that fight? What's the uphill battle? I mean, I... I mean, if we're going to do change, if you're going to do change, you're going to have to fight everything. I mean, you're running for, effectively, when you get into Congress, let's let's look on the positive side. When you get into Congress, you will be the least powerful member of a body of 435 people. Sure. And you won't be in power or truly have power and be on the committees that you want to be on for at least six terms before you start to have enough seniority to be in some of those interesting places. But that's not saying that you can't do interesting things. It's just going to literally be a constant fight of all the things that you have to do. What are the three that you're going to fight the most for? Yeah, so and I'll answer that question in a minute. But to the, you know, anyone running for... The House of Representatives and saying, when I get in, here's the 10 things that I'm going to have accomplished. No, no, no. I'm not asking that. Or three things, you know. Is, I'm asking the three that you're going to focus smoke. on. But, yeah. but what we should insist on as voters is not electing people that aren't willing to go fight for things. Because if you send people to go represent you that won't carry an agenda, you know, you're going to get what you paid for, which is nothing. And so it all starts, in my opinion, with voters saying, all right, we're gonna, I'll give you my vote. Maybe I'll give you some money. Maybe I'll volunteer for you. What are you going to do for me when you get there? And anybody that sits in my shoes now and says, good news, when I get there, you know, a new vending machine in the hallway and everything else, um, I remember those kids from high school. And uh, I knew, I and I knew they were, it was BS then, and it's BS now just on a bigger level when candidates pitch it. So, you know, to be blunt with you, a couple things. One is I'm proud to be running with a slate of candidates that are not taking corporate PAC money, 
that believe like I do that the way that we change things is by electing a brand new Congress and electing people that are not beholden to lobbyists, not beholden to corporate interests. And so there's a bunch of us. And we have the ability, because frankly, there's a lot of people that just want to like put it on their resume, have it be a good job, whatever, you know, they wanted to be in politics. So there's a lot of people that get elected and they're like, now I'm here. Now what? Because I don't really have an agenda. So I have an agenda, a big time agenda. And I'm not the only one that shares that agenda. Let's stick up for people. Let's quit taking corporate money. Let's quit being lackeys to lobbyists. So hope that a bunch of us get in. And even if it's 20 of us, we have the ability to dictate a message uh, because there's a lot of people there that don't really have a message. They're just, they're just there, right? Oh, yeah. So we'll be like, here's our message. Get on board. It's a winner. You want to get reelected? Let's go. This is what people in America want. Let's go. If I can't do that, if I show up and they're like, hey, it's, you know, nothing actually happens here. All you can do is kiss rings and do all the things that, frankly, I hate about politics. The power that I'll have, and it's not a lot, but the power that I'll have is to pull back the curtain for the people of Montana and the people of America and say, this is how sausage gets made and it's gross. And I'm calling them out on it. I'm calling them out on it. And I think at a minimum, you could do so much by not playing the game, not playing this like, I'm getting this position and this job to build up to this and this and this. Uh, I believe that the House of Representatives in particular, I mean, because if you look at our founding fathers and the way they created our country that has worked well for a long time, you had the Senate, they were kind of the aristocracy, they were the people that frankly had more money and they got to serve for six years back until Clark, we didn't even get to vote on who our senators were. Right. You know, the House of Representatives is different. It's like jury duty for Americans in our, you know, in our legislative process. It's supposed to be your neighbors, your friends, people that are just like you. They show up, they represent you, they're like you, and then somebody else shows up and represents you. So... In my opinion, what's gotten corrupted in the process, particularly with the House, is you've got people that have been there for 20, 30, 40 years. And maybe they were sitting in this chair with the most idealistic of intentions. And somewhere along the line, power got to them, whatever got to them, they became insiders. And so, again, you know, who's to blame? Well, a lot of blame to pass around. But frankly, it falls on voters. Voters should vote people out that are, you know, stop representing people. So um, we've got one of those representatives right now. He hasn't been there for 20 years. That's the representative. But he also he hasn't met with any Montanans since he's been elected. Yeah. And, and his cohort, Danes, hasn't met with any either. So, And I'll call them out. I know both of them. I, I know them personally, and I think it's ridiculous that they can't buck up and meet people. I'm like, I'm probably the scariest Montanan in the state. Like, if I see you doing something wrong, I will call you out. But to your face. I have no problem with it. And the fact that they can't meet with people just blows my mind. 
I'm like, how can you represent people you won't even talk to? Well, I'd say in my in my line of work up till now, uh, how on earth can I be an advocate for my clients? How on earth can I stick up for people if I won't sit with them, I won't listen to them, I won't hear their problems? Um, it all starts with sitting and listening. And so, yeah, that that troubles me a lot. And why are you there? And what are you doing? And, you know... So much that troubles me, but I think you go with an exit plan. You don't go because this is what I want to be doing 20 years from now, and how can I be a lobbyist when I'm done? How can I feather my own cap, feather my own nest? It's, you know, public service is supposed to mean public service, which is supposed to mean not acting in your own best interest, but acting in the best interests of, you know, your, the people. I, I, I'm wholly committed to that. Wholly that's, committed. That's to great. That. So one last question for you. Yeah. How are you going to reach out to the people on the other side of the aisle before the vote? I mean, right now, obviously you're dealing with the primary and it's just, you've got to, you've got to get the message to all the Democrats. And we all, it's funny because I like the candidates that we have. I, I, the problem that I always have with every primary is that when we have good candidates, I'm like, oh, we have great candidates. I have to make a decision. And so I, I understand that battle. But what are the one things that you would say to the Republicans? And I will tell you why I'm asking this, because both of my parents are staunch Republicans. They have a big old queer son. It's great. Uh, and they have to listen to my podcast because I make them. But they always have, well, how are they going to talk to me? I'm like, so I'll ask, how are you going to talk to my parents? How are you going to talk to the old blue-haired brigade that's all the GOP ladies? And Yeah, I'm already, well, here's the thing. I'm not running to represent Democrats. I'm running to represent Montanans. And that's a message that I've had from day one. And it'll be the message that I have for good, bad, or otherwise throughout. Because... This tribalism, this, like, your team versus my team is the problem. And the people that I represent, the people that are in foreclosure, the people that come in because they need a medical bankruptcy, the people that come in because their insurance company is ripping them off, the people that come in because the bank has cheated them, that's not their, their demo, you know, the bank ch- ripped them off because they're a Democrat or the bank ripped them off because they're a Republican. The bank ripped them off because they're a consumer. The the insurance company ripped them off because they can, because they have power. And they, and you know, my client doesn't. And so I have no interest in like huddling with the D team to fight against the R team. And I'm in Billings. I've got Tons of Republican friends, tons of independent friends. Every day, people that I don't know come up to me and say, thanks for running, you've got my support, I'm a Republican, or you've got my support, I'm an independent, I don't vote for Democrats. And to the people that are really, you know, they cheer for the R team, boy, they cheer for the R team so hard. Here's what I say to them. I'm not asking you to change teams. I'm not trying to convince you to, you know, put on the D jersey and run around and fly that flag. I'm saying to you, is this the person that you're proud of, you know, on your team? Is this the person that you want on your team to represent you? This is a two-year job. 
And so what I say to people is, you know, the ones that are like, God, I love you, John. I want to get behind you, but you're running as a Democrat, so I don't know that I can. What I say is, it's a two-year job. And hire me, I'll work my tail off for you. I'll work really hard. I think I'll make you proud. But if I don't, send a message to your party to give you a better candidate that you can vote against. You know, you know, force the Montana Republican Party to give you somebody that you, know, you can be proud to vote for. Because people aren't proud to vote for who they have now. Here we are sitting on Friday, and, you know, there's, there's only one Republican in the state that's running to be um, the congressional representative. I know that that can't be true. I know that there's, you know, because I talk to them every day, they wish there were other Republicans that were running. So what I say is, you know, do your best to not focus on the letter that I'm wearing on my jersey Look on the back of my jersey where it says Heenan, and you know, see the shape of Montana. Yeah, see if you can't get behind that because at the end of the day, I'm a father, I'm a business owner, I'm a husband, I'm somebody that loves the state, loves the people in the state. Um, I have zero interest in you know doing what. President Trump tells me to do. I have zero interest in doing what Nancy Pelosi tells me to do. I have 100% interest in doing what Montanans want me to do and what's in their best interests. So that's what I'm about, good, bad, or otherwise. Cool. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That was a great time with John Heenan, and I'm really thankful that he agreed to help me relaunch the podcast. And I'd like to welcome you back, too. In the last three years and 50 weeks, politics has gone, well, sideways. It's been weird. It's been rough. When I stopped the podcast, it was because interest had waned a bit, and my life was taking off in other directions, and I needed to focus, and I was not having as much fun. And it's more work than you realize to get this up and running. But now, it seems like a good time. People are interested in politics, are hoping for change, and want to make the world a bit better. And funny enough, I see this on all sides. We won't always agree on the ways to do it, but we can at least be seated, talking, and see where our common ground is. And that's what this podcast is for. It's not a gotcha, and it's not hard-hitting or blindsiding. That's not what I'm after. I want people running for office to have a chance to sit down and really get to explain their positions, their feelings, their drives, because that's the only way that we, the voters, are going to know enough about them to really make an educated vote. I welcome anyone from any part of the political spectrum to reach out to me via the site at politicticboom.com to come on my show and talk up yourself. It's time to get your voice heard, and I can't wait to share all of this with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Take it down.